Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. And now is the best time of the year to support the podcast. For we have reached the dog days of summer. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Didn't I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 419 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Skylab 3, those tricky garriots. Last time we ended on mission day 45 of the second crewed mission to Skylab. On day 46, the little-known but probably the best prank ever played on mission control was pulled off by Owen Garriott and his wife, Helen. First, here's some background information. Even though there was not constant air-to-ground communication on Skylab, conversation was much more frequent and more extensive than in any other previous manned spaceflight program. Teams of engineers, scientists, doctors, flight planners, managers, and controllers all communicated through the CAPCOM. Of course, CAPCOM rotated with the flight control shifts throughout the three missions. Just about all the CAPCOMs were astronauts who had trained on the Skylab systems and procedures and with the flight control teams. CAPCOMs were the focal link to the crew in space. Additionally, they acted as the crew's representative in mission control. Keep that in mind. Information that was deemed open communications from the spacecraft was done on the A-channel. This communication was supplemented by inputs by the public affairs officer seated in mission control who expanded on what the astronauts were saying or doing for the general public to understand. Now, the more technical information like scientific reports and the crew's personal interpretations, comments they had, evaluations of procedures and hardware were handled on the restricted B channel. This information was recorded on the B channel for later download to the ground. For example, the crew might record something like, quote, who designed this shower? 
It takes an hour to use and then clean up afterwards. I'm taking baths in the waste management compartment now. End quote. Things like that. Finally, there was the capability for the crew to have a private discussion with their family and doctors by using the command module's B channel, not the station's B channel. The command module's B channel was not monitored by other controllers. So, for example, a crew member could have a private conversation with his wife, and they could have all that lovey-dovey talk without fear of the people in the back room laughing at them and making fun. Another important thing to keep in mind was that all communications from Skylab were made with a male voice, obviously since the crew was three men. Now, in his own words, this is how Owen Garriott described the prank he did on Mission Control. Quote, On the evening of Mission Day 46, I finally played the trick that had been in work for over two months. It even had the flight controllers puzzled for 25 years. My objective was to pretend that my wife, Helen, had come up to Skylab to bring us a hot meal, even though this was an obvious impossibility. Here is how the scheme worked. I recorded her voice on my small handheld tape recorder before flight, pretending to have a brief conversation with a Capcom, with time gaps for his replies. The Capcom would be my only accomplice, but his role would be carefully disguised. It was also necessary to have some recent event mentioned to validate the currency of the dialogue. So it would seem it could not have been recorded before flight. I knew that both Bob Crippen and Carl Hines were going to be Capcoms for Skylab. So they were brought into the planning. They were given the script and rehearsed on their timing. They kept the short script on a piece of paper in their billfolds, awaiting the right moment. For our flight in August through September, there would be many occasions of natural disasters involving forest fires or hurricanes, which would be widely known throughout the United States. So a few comments about one or the other were made on the tape. This led to four different scripts being recorded, one for each of the two Capcoms and one each for the two natural disasters. I would play the tape on the normal air-to-ground voice link, meaning channel A, with my wife's recorded voice and the Capcom would respond as if totally surprised by the female interloper, end quote. On day 46, near the end of one period of voice communications, Garriott said the code phrase 
to the ground. Quote, I'll have something for you on the next pass, Bob. Crippen replied, Roger that, Owen. End quote. Then, quite surreptitiously, Bob reviewed the brief script that had been in his pocket for all these weeks. Soon after coming into voice range again, the ground heard this female voice on Channel A saying, quote, Gad, I don't see how the boys managed to get rid of the feedback between these speakers. Hello, Houston. How are you reading me down there? Hello, Houston? Are you reading Skylab? Skylab, this is Houston. We heard you all right, but had difficulty recognizing your voice. Who do we have up there? Hello, Houston. Roger. Well, I haven't talked with you for a while. Isn't that you down there, Bob? This is Helen, here in Skylab. The boys hadn't had a good home-cooked meal in so long, I thought I'd bring one up. Over. Uh, Roger, Skylab. Someone's got to be pulling my leg, Helen. Where are you? Right here in Skylab, Bob. Just a few orbits ago, we were looking down on those forest fires in California. The smoke sure covers a lot of territory. And oh boy, the sunrises are just beautiful. Uh-oh. See you later, Bob. I hear the boys coming up here, and I'm not supposed to be on the radio. Garriott continued. Then Quiet returned to the voice link. But we were told later Bob Crippen had lots of questions coming his way in the control center. What was going on? Where was this voice coming from? Bob must have been a very good actor because he claimed complete ignorance and innocence of how it happened. Everyone heard it coming down on the air-to-ground loop. The whole two-way conversation sounded like a perfectly normal dialogue. No breaks or gaps, and they all heard Bob respond in real time. Could I have recorded Helen's voice on a family conversation from our home? Yes, but there was no recent one. How would she have known about the fires? Or who was to be on Capcom duty? And how could she respond to Bob's comments in real time, as everyone could hear? No one ever worked it out how this was accomplished. Finally, at our 25th reunion celebration in Houston in 1998, and with many of the flight directors and controllers present, and still no clue as to how it was done, I described it all. My opinion is that this was the best gotcha ever perpetrated on our friendly flight controllers. End quote. Bob Crippen recalled, quote, That was kind of a fun trick. There was head rubbing. Everybody in the room was looking like, What is going on? We did a good job. It was fun. Working those missions got to be tough. 
we did all kinds of things to try to come up with levity. That was a nice one that the crew got that the ground control didn't know about. End quote. Amidst all this trickery on day 46, the crew got some disappointing news concerning their request for an extension to their mission. By mission's end, everything was working so well aboard Skylab that Commander Bean asked for a few days' extension to the flight. His request was denied by mission control, and the crew prepared to leave the orbital workshop. The crew simply replied, Okay, thanks. The astronauts were told one of the reasons for not extending the mission was they would have to eat into the third crew's food supply, which they had already started to do, but mostly just the sugar cookies. Furthermore, the Apollo telescope mount film would be exhausted before the end of the extension, as they were already rationing it now. In any case, the decision not to grant the extension marked the beginning of the end of the Skylab 2 mission. The crew started preparations for their return to Earth in earnest. The next day, Bean noted in his diary that he had received several changes to the entry checklist. These changes reflected the new procedures needed due to the two quad thruster malfunctions. The approaching end of the mission meant that the crew had to begin to shift their circadian rhythms. In other words, the body's sense of when it should be asleep or awake in order to prepare for the return to Earth. For the final days of the mission, they would slowly change their scheduled sleep and wake periods to modify their circadian rhythms so that they would be ready. The schedule for the final day of the mission was previously planned out to assure that the crew would get as much rest as possible before beginning re-entry. In the meantime, the crew conducted a rather odd but useful experiment as to whether body motions by the crew could affect the attitude of a spacecraft. To perform the experiments, the crew conducted what was termed crew vehicle disturbance runs. It amounted to the astronauts jumping off a wall as hard as they could to the other wall on the other side of the spacecraft. They observed the experiment with instruments and a TV camera, and it turned out that physics still works in space. Force equals mass times acceleration. Crew movement can affect the attitude of a spacecraft. Will body motions of crewmen affect attitude and control of a space vehicle? This question was put to the test in a series of crew vehicle disturbance runs. Okay, they just jumped off the wall and you can see the excursion rather clearly on the ATM monitor. It was uh, probably an arc minute or so. They're jumping back and you can see the excursion up and down on the monitor quite clearly. A force measuring system, which senses loads applied to the workshop, is matched with concurrent control system data to find the answers. 
The tests will clear up many uncertainties about crew motion effects and will influence the design of spacecraft of tomorrow. By mission day 51, the crew was finishing their Earth Resources Experiment package runs and taking a lot of pictures. Skylab cameras, meanwhile, maintained a steady flow of pictorial data, such as Earth's horizon air glow. These photos will tell scientists about the behavior of ozone and its importance to the thermal balance of the atmosphere. For the science of meteorology, strong weather systems were closely documented. As were these very striking wind convection patterns. Volcanoes? They were photographed around the world to perhaps form a basis for predicting volcanic activity. The Alps the Straits of Magellan, Italy, Gibraltar, Washington, Baltimore, the Grand Canyon, Cape Cod, the drought area of Africa. From handheld and Earth resources cameras, our planet was photographically documented as never before. Also, they begin their circadian rhythm adjustment on day 51 by going to bed two hours early that night. Bean wrote in his diary, quote, We did not want this, but can live with it. I went to the command and service module to get a Seconol to sleep on time. End quote. On day 52, Owen did an experiment that was somewhat ahead of its time by demonstrating that the TV close-up lens could be used medically. He looked at Jack's ear, eye, nose, throat, teeth, and discussed how the TV might be used by doctors to aid in diagnosis and treatment of problems we might have, such as an eye injury or a tooth extraction, suturing a wound, or any number of things from a broken bone to a skin rash. By day 55, Bean was beginning to worry about the two failed thrusters on the service module. He wrote in his diary, quote, The real problem might be the reaction control system with the failed thrusters. Well, we'll know soon enough. There's no reason to believe anything's wrong with the two remaining quads. The days can't pass fast enough. We have done our job and are ready to get back home. At least, I am. I don't know about Jack, but Owen would like to stay, end quote. 
while Owen wrote in his diary, quote, I'll miss old Skylab. Really hate to leave for a variety of reasons. Mostly all the unique things to do and see. A geographer's paradise. Jack and I would both like to spend days at the window with a camera. Next time. End quote. I'm sure you recall when the Skylab workshop was launched, it carried with it provisions for all three crews. They were divided up according to the nominal mission lengths. As a side note, despite the overage provisions, the third crew reported that some of their provisions seemed to be missing by the time they made it to Skylab. Most notably, strawberry drinks and butter cookies. By Mission Day 56, food was not the only item affected by the mission duration limitations. Jack Lausma explained, quote, One of the things, of course, on Skylab was that most of all our equipment and gear and food and clothing and whatever didn't go up on the separate crew launches to get there were all brought up on the original launch of the Skylab. And when we got up there, we were all scheduled to have a certain amount of everything. There was a group of stuff for the first crew, and they pretty much kept to their stuff. They didn't get into ours. And there was a certain amount for the second crew, that was us, and we pretty well confined ourselves to our stuff. We didn't get into the third crew stuff at all. Actually, what we did was we knew we were supposed to be up there 56 days, or whatever multiple would get us over the landing site, and that these guys were going to be up there 56 days too. We wanted to stay longer than them. So, at day 40 or so, we asked if we could stay 10 more days. It went in multiples of five. Every fifth day, you were over the right landing site. And Mission Control deliberated on that for about a week, and they finally came back about day 50 and said, You guys have used up your food, or you will, and you've used up your film, and we don't want you getting into the supplies of the third crew. We wouldn't do that anyway. We were very careful about that. But on the other hand, we were having somewhat of a problem because we were limited in our supplies of underwear. The plan was we would all have a change of underwear every two days for the planned mission lens. 28 days, 56 days, and 56 days. Since there were no laundry facilities on the Skylab space station, soiled clothing was jettisoned into the evacuated liquid oxygen tank via the trash airlock and was replaced with new clothing. 
The allocation was for one change of outer garments every two weeks and one change of underwear every two days. So the ground had the delicate dilemma of deciding how to provide enough sets of skivvies for both crews from a carefully calculated limited supply without compromising the duration of the present and next missions. The doctor's hygiene restrictions, and especially the crew's most personal expectations with respect to living and working in space with the same comfort to which they had become accustomed with regular changes to clean skivvies. On the morning of the last appointed day of the last set of skivvies, it became clear the ground had solved this problem, at least to their satisfaction. The answer was uplinked on the teleprinter when the crew slept. The solution to this problem was printed in a common humor form of the era known as good news, bad news. The message was, with respect to today's regular change of underwear, we have good news and bad news for you. The good news is, you will get to change your underwear today. The bad news is, Al, you change with Owen. Owen, you change with Jack. And Jack, you change with Al. End quote. Owen Garriott will be acting as an assistant to Commander Alan Bean, who will do the actual job of replacing the film and camera assemblies for several of those ATM instruments. Uh, also to bring back in three of the sample arrays for experiments uh, that are now deployed outside the workshop. The third and final EVA of the mission was the shortest of the three, with a duration of two hours and 45 minutes. The purpose of this EVA, as you heard, was to exchange the Apollo telescope mount film cassettes and retrieve some of the parasol samples left outside on EVA number two for return to Earth after a month's exposure outside. For the third time, Owen Garriott ventured outside, but this time he was accompanied by Al Bean on Al's only EVA not taken on the surface of another world. Just like the second EVA, Bean struggled to decide who would go on the final spacewalk. The original flight plan called for Garriott to go on both of the first two spacewalks, and Lausma and Bean would have gone on one of the first two EVAs each. Instead, Lausma and Garriott went on both of the first two spacewalks. This is a testimony of how seriously Bean took his job as commander when he selected the best people to go on the first two walks instead of inserting himself, even though he really did want to go. On Mission Day 43, Bean wrote in his diary, made a decision for Owen and I to do the EVA, 
talked it over with Jack before I asked Owen. Reason was that Jack would probably get another chance to fly and to EVA, but Owen would not. In my opinion, Owen has made this space flight much more interesting than it could have been with three operational types. End quote. Believe it or not, Garriott flew again, and he would actually accumulate a longer total spaceflight duration than Jack Lausma, who also only made one shuttle flight. Neither, however, would ever do another EVA. For Bean, the spacewalk was an enduring experience, even though he was the fourth man to walk on the moon. This EVA was unlike anything else he experienced during spaceflight. The best part for Beam was a nighttime half-orbit with nothing to do. While Al was working on the instrument doors on the Apollo telescope mount, the ground radioed up that they would need to test the doors in the full sunlight and thus told him to just wait out the roughly 35 minutes in the night pass. When the morning came, they would test the doors. This is how Bean described it. Quote, So, I had nothing to do then for the night pass, and I remember we weren't in the night yet. We were going into it across the Mediterranean, looking down at Italy and Sicily, with the volcano Mount Etna, next looking down at Egypt, the Nile Delta was very obvious. Off in the distance was Israel and Saudi Arabia, and it was dark there. I could see the flares from all these oil rigs, and they were just all over the place. Most of them were in the water in the Persian Gulf, though I couldn't tell it then but when we got closer, I could, because it was still sort of dark on the ground. Light where we were. I remember thinking, what an amazing sight. And then, I'd been a gymnast in college, so I kicked out of the foot restraints and did a handstand on the handholds there. And I felt like I'd set the world record handstand for height and speed. I remember that was fun. Then we came back into the daylight. End quote. Bean also explained how the Skylab EVA was a much different experience than the Moon EVA. Saying, quote, On Skylab... After the airlock module was depressurized, first egressing through the open hatch into open space, I can remember that being more scary than the hatch on the moon because the hatch on the moon was smaller and you went out backwards. And also, when you went out, you were looking at the door and the frame. And then you looked over, and there's the dirt. It wasn't like you were going to fly away. The moon even provides about one-sixth of Earth's gravitational force. When that hatch on Skylab, 
and we were sitting there looking at it. It just seemed like we could fall out. I mean, there was nothing there. As I tell people if they ask, it was much more science fiction to go EVA in Skylab than it was to go EVA on the moon. The EVA on the moon was much like training. You were in light, the sky was black, but everything else was the same. You were standing there, like we trained, over and over. But when you go EVA in space, it's like crawling out the window on an airliner and just going along the wing and looking in the engine. I mean, something that would be impossible to do, but I think it's the nearest analog to what we actually do on EVA. We crawl out on the vehicle and go along the side, and there's nothing you can do on Earth like it. End quote. The third and final EVA was a great success. The spacewalkers only had one real problem. Leaks prevented the suit cooling system water from circulating through the suits. Garriott reported being only slightly warm during the EVA, but Bean's hands were constantly warm. With the 56-day mission now complete, it was time for the crew to come home. They would soon find out if the two remaining quad thruster packs would function and if the procedures created by the rescue crew of Don Lind and Vance Brand would work. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I want to say thanks for listening to episode number 419 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Skylab 3, Those Tricky Garriots. Our next episode should be released on or about August 10th. If you would like to be notified by email when new episodes are posted, you can subscribe to the blog by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and typing in your email in the text box on the right side of the page. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 237 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Exactly that. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you would like, you can follow me on Twitter. My handle is at SpaceRocketHist. We're slowly building up that account as, remember, we had well over a thousand and uh, we had that uh, attack and we lost everybody. And so I think we're, we're over 200 back on uh, SpaceRocketHist. So please follow me. I try to follow you back. 
And you can follow on Facebook by searching for Space Rocket History. You can also keep up with me on Patreon at patreon.com slash space rocket history. Of course, I have a few afterthoughts. As always, I apologize for my mispronunciations. Well, folks, history is an imprecise subject that's often shaded by a person's perceptions and viewpoints and even their memory. And sometimes stories are embellished or they take a life of their own. If you're writing history, a very valuable and useful tool is a primary source or several primary sources interviewed separately. A primary source is a first-hand account. Someone who has been there or even participated in the event. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because I encountered two different versions of Garriott's prank in which two different well-written and respected books told a different story. I chose to bring to you the version of the story told by Garriott himself and corroborated by Bob Crippen, as well as the 1998 25th anniversary celebration evidence as well. This information came from the book Homestead in Space. Now, this book was written by David Hitt, Owen Garriott, and Joe Kerwin. Notice Owen Garriott and Joe Kerwin, both on Skylab. And they naturally had the contacts to do a lot of interviews. In fact, this is where a lot of the quotes come from homesteading space because they interviewed everybody just about. Anyway, the other story, the conflicting story that Garriott was that Garriott took his recorder up to the command module and used the private channel to record his wife's responses and the Capcom's including Bob Crippen, weren't even involved. Well, first of all, there was no primary source, and this didn't seem as well-researched, and it really seemed a little fishy because if you just make a tape recording off a radio broadcast and then you broadcast that recording back down, there's a, a lot of quality loss in there. So, I chose the homesteading space story to relay to you. I just wanted you to know that in case you ever hear the other story. And and so you'll know there's a different version. And by the way, thanks to Mrs. SRH for her portrayal of Helen Garriott in the joke. I looked all over for an audio clip of that because I would have rather played it but I just could not find it. Now I used a word called 
skivvies to describe underwear. That's what it means here in the U.S. Skivvies is underwear. Apparently, it means something very different in the U.K. So, (laughs) what I'm referring to when I say skivvies is underwear. And speaking of that, how did you like that joke from NASA? (laughs) That came up on the teletype. The good news, bad news. Good news, you can change your underwear. Bad news, you got to change it with somebody else. (laughs) So you got to wear someone else's dirty underwear. Mrs. SRH and I both laughed out loud at that. Had a listener email me, and his name is Terry B. And I really enjoyed his email, so I thought I would share it with you. I'll read it here. Quote, Good afternoon, Mike. I continue to enjoy your Skylab podcast series. Always a pleasure to listen to. I just returned from a scout trip to Philmont Scott Ranch, New Mexico, with my troop, and thought you might enjoy seeing your logo in such a beautiful location. The photos were taken on the summit of Mount Phillips, At 12,000 feet, my crew hiked for 11 days and covered close to 80 miles. It was great fun, and the night skies were outstanding. I'm sure you may find this interesting. In the 1960s, the Apollo astronauts came to New Mexico near Philmont's Scout Ranch, in particular, to learn and practice lunar Geology. New Mexico has an abundant volcanic landscape that mirrored the lunar surface. There are several photos and signed thank you notes from the Apollo astronauts on display at Philmont. Enjoy. End quote. And he sent, he emailed me uh, three nice photos of the Space Rocket History logo on his water bottle, which was on the summit of Mount Phillips at 12,000 feet. He also had a big old Tang sticker on there, too. (laughs) I really enjoyed seeing that. Thank you very much, Terry. I may post this on Patreon. Finally, have a little bit of personal news. Feel free to skip this part if you want. The soybeans in the 15-acre field are still growing. The garden is still growing, but in desperate need of weeding and water. We have not had much rain here. I know it's been really hot over the rest of the country, uh, but here it's not been as bad. We're uh, a little above normal, but we're we're not doing that bad in this little section so far of the country but we do need some rain and the bigger news is the builder has stopped by and did a little bit of work remember i was telling you about the crack in the basement wall that kept growing well he caulked it up but a few days later it's already starting to split where he caulked it 
he uh, refused to do anything about the big cracks in the basement floor. They just weren't big enough yet. And they needed to be separated more. They needed to be on a different level. It needed to be, they needed to be crowning in order for him to do something about that. So instead, he just assured me that those big cracks were perfectly normal in a one-year home, one-year-old home. It's normal to have big cracks like that all over the place, like 30 cracks. Yeah, that's normal. Remember the leaning tower of heat pump? Well, they fixed that using my gravel. <laughs> to fix the shaky floor in the bedroom, kitchen, and living room, they installed what they called a hog trough. That's a hog trough on the joist in the basement. It was an improvement, but the floor still has a noticeable shake, and I mentioned that to him. But he assured me that I needed to have that shake so the floor wouldn't be too tight. Now, I guess on the rest of the house where the floor doesn't shake, that it may be too tight. And he left with a promise to revisit and finish up the rest of the punch lines, punch list later. Maybe October. And finally, you recall last time I told you my mother-in-law has been having a problem with a leaky valve in her heart, and uh, the uh, solution really is to replace the valve. But uh, she's 90 years old, and she has to pass a test before they will do that surgery, even though they do it intravenously. So she now finally has an appointment, but it's not until late August to determine if she qualifies for the surgery to replace the valve. So we're kind of in a holding pattern, hoping that she'll be approved to get the surgery. And that's about all the news I have for now. Okay, moving on to donations. Folks, we have reached what I call the dog days of summer. A time every year where support drops to an almost unsustainable level. Over the past fortnight, we received one new donation. Now, of course, I would like to thank that person very much. That would be Cameron B. from Australia, who donated at the Mercury level and earned a Nova emoji. Thank you very much. But, of course, one new donation every fortnight is, is kind of difficult to deal with financially around here. So, the other bad news is our Patreons declined again, and have declined to 240. So, and I expect it to go into the 230s because we're changing months from July 
to August and most likely someone's credit card will expire. So we'll have that to deal with as well. So is getting into a financially troubling situation here. All right. If you would, if you are enjoying this podcast that has been running now for over 10 years without commercial interruptions and you can afford it, consider going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link or you can donate by check or use Venmo or Zelle. You, all you need to know is my email address to do that, which is spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you need my mailing address, email me, and I'll give it to you. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. The winner for this episode will get the choice of the SRH archive magnet or the regular magnet or two stickers or a NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator I selected, Angelo D'Agostino. Angelo D'Agostino, if you will email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Please accept my apologies if I mispronounced your name. Sincere thanks to all who have contributed this far in 2023. My sources for this episode were NASA, Homesteading Space, The Skylab Story by David Hitt, Skylab, America's Space Station by David Shaler, Outpost on the Frontier by Jay Chladick, Apollo, an eyewitness account by Alan Bean, The Internet Archive, Flickr, and Wikipedia. And that's all I have for this episode. We'll try to have episode 420 posted on or about August 10th. So long for now.